So last week we examined how the three and a half years of Christ's ministry culminated in the triumphal entry. So we separated his ministry into three sections. The first section is what we called his public presentation. That was two and a half years where he publicly presented himself as the Messiah. He went throughout Galilee and through the lands of the, where the Jews lived, and he publicly, openly taught that he was the Messiah. Now, he didn't actually use the word Messiah because that would have triggered some... Uh, that would have triggered Rome thinking he was an insurrectionist. But he used cleverly formulated uh, phrases. For example, the Son of Man found in Daniel. That would have been associated with the Messiah. So when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, well, he's referring to himself as Messiah. But for the Roman soldier to hear a, a Jew say, I am the Son of Man, they would have thought, well, Duh, so am I. I have a dad. I'm, son of, I'm a son of man as well. So they would, have not, they would not have noticed that phrase. But for the Jew, it was a clear sign that he was claiming to be the Messiah. So for two and a half years, he went around publicly presenting himself as the Messiah. This culminated in rejection. The Jewish leaders rejected him, and the Jewish people rejected him. And so for the next six months, we call that the private preparation time where he privately prepared his disciples for his death. During this time, he starts to teach in parables. Have you ever wondered why Jesus constantly tells people after he heals them, now don't go tell anybody about that? It was because it was during that period. He was still healing people because he had pity on them, but he also knew that once word got out that Jesus was in town and he was healing people, the crowds would come. And they would get in the way of him privately preparing his disciples for his death. So he leaves the, the areas that the Jews are dwelling in, and he starts to go to Gentile areas. Finally, goes to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was a dangerous region. It was where the Roman soldiers went for vacation. For a Jew to be in that area was incredibly dangerous. But he needs to get them together to give them the final exam. Who do you say I am? And Peter answers and gets an A+. You are the Son of God, the Messiah. Well said, Peter. And then he, then he informs him, you're right, and I'm going to die. So now they know, they clearly recognize him as the Messiah, and he informs them, correct, and by the way, I'm going to die. It shocks the disciples. So much so that to give them one last bit of hope, he gives them the gift of the transfiguration. After that, we get into a mixed focus. For the next six months, he still tries to, to get away with his disciples to privately prepare them for his death. But at the same time, he goes through the regions of Judea and Perea, and he presents himself to those regions as the Messiah. This culminates in the raising of Lazarus. And that seals in the people's heart that he's the Messiah. The Messiah would heal people. He would, he would have the power to call back from the dead. Yes, he is the Messiah. But it would also seal in the Jewish leadership's heart that he needs to die. So he travels back up into the land of Galilee. And he comes down with all of the thousands of pilgrims that are going down into Jerusalem for the Passover week. And while he's going with them, 
He once again publicly presents himself. He preaches openly that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah, Son of God come in the flesh, and he works miracles to authenticate that claim. That's the way it always worked. You have a God-sized claim, you have a, better have a God-sized miracle to back that God-sized claim up. Kids, what would you do today if I came up to you and I said, Zach, I am the Son of God. You'd think I was crazy, wouldn't you? You'd be like, pastors lost it. And you'd be right. However, if I said that and then I worked some miracles, you'd be like, uh-oh, I better start taking this guy seriously. I can't work any miracles, okay? So don't worry about it. But Jesus could. He had a God-sized claim and he had God-sized miracles to back it up. So he works these miracles as he travels down with the pilgrims for the Passover week. He stays in Bethany for Sabbath, while they travel on into Jerusalem, he sets it up perfectly that when he comes into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, they would welcome him as Messiah. And that's exactly what happened. All of Jerusalem, the crowds in Jerusalem, welcomed him as Messiah. The disciples knew it. The crowds knew it. And even the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing with the triumphal entry. He was proclaiming himself and formally presenting himself as Messiah. In fact, they saw it so clearly, they said, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them get away with this blasphemy. And Jesus says, it's so clear that I'm Messiah. This is so clear that if everyone was silent, even the rocks would cry out. Even the rocks understand, man. He's like saying, the dirt understands this. Are you dumber than dirt? Come on, guys. That's how clear it was. And we came to the conclusion that it was clear. And the Pharisees refused to believe, not out of confusion, but out of rebellion. That is why the Jewish leadership refused to believe. It wasn't that they were confused. He had the claim, he had the signs to back up the claim. It was strictly rebellion. And that was our conclusion. This week, we're going to look at why did the crowds welcome him and understand him as Messiah on Sunday and on Friday yelled to crucify him. So we're going to do a, a real quick walk through the Passion Week. If you get my emails, you would have already gotten a lot of these. If you don't get my emails, come and talk to me and I'll give you, or I'll get your email address and I'll sign you up for those weekly emails. But we, we walked through the Passion Week. We're going to do a quick walk through the Passion Week and then we're going to examine the trials that he goes through, all to understand why they cried out for him to be crucified on Friday when they welcomed him as king on Sunday. So it starts off, Passion Week starts off with a triumphal entry. We've already talked about it. He formally presents himself as Messiah. People welcome their Messiah. The religious leaders reject and desire to kill him. And then he goes back to Bethany at night. Now, he always returns back to Bethany. So during, that, during the Passion Week, every night he goes back to Bethany. He is safe in Bethany. We have to remember that the Jewish leadership desired to kill him. In Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He's protected in Bethany. Now, you might ask, why don't they kill him while he's at the temple? Well, they don't have the power to execute people. And you might say, well, what about Stephen? 
We see in Acts 7, they stone Stephen. Clearly, they can kill people. The answer to that is Stephen is a nobody. It's kind of hard to say because he's really become influential in the faith. But in Jerusalem, Jesus or Stephen was a nobody. Nobody cared, no political power, I should say, cared if he lived or died. The stoning of Stephen wasn't going to create a riot. And the Romans cared about peace, peace and taxes. So Pontius Pilate and the leadership of Rome, the empire of Rome, they didn't really care what happened in the day-to-day lives of people. What they cared about was that the taxes continued to flow to Rome. So as long as there was peace and they could collect taxes, everything was okay. So the stoning of Stephen isn't going to create a riot. Go ahead, stone him. The, The Roman leadership would turn their back on that crime. But the crowds would have started a riot if they had killed Jesus. If they had taken him out of the temple right then and there and stoned him, it would have created a riot. Rome would have come in to keep the peace. They would have had to do an investigation. They would have found the Jewish leadership to be at fault. And guess what? The Jewish leadership would be out. In fact, Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law, was the high priest. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the high priest was a lifelong appointment. So why is Annas, who we'll meet later, still alive but no longer the high priest? It's because he didn't play nicely with Rome. So Rome gave him the boot. Rome was willing to change the leadership in Jerusalem. The Jews knew it. So they had to figure out a way that they could kill Jesus without sparking a riot. And what they had come to the conclusion of is that they had to do it while he was alone. They couldn't do it in front of crowds. And so every night, Jesus goes back to Bethany to stay safe. And every day he comes into Jerusalem. So, he goes back to Bethany for the night. He wakes up on Monday. He curses the fig tree and uses it. Well, he doesn't use it as an object lesson yet. That will be tomorrow. And then he cleanses the temple. This is the second cleansing of the temple. Oftentimes we get this picture that Jesus was just mad. So he comes in, he storms the temple, and he's just out of anger. And that's not it at all. Jesus had been in the temple several times. He knows clearly what he's doing. And he's doing it for a purpose, and that is to demonstrate his messianic authority. So if Sunday was messianic presentation, Monday and Tuesday are going to be messianic proclamation. He is establishing his messianic authority that that is his house. The temple is his house. He will demonstrate control over it. So that's what he does with the cleansing of the temple. It's not just because he's mad. It's because he owns the temple. Then he weeps over Jerusalem and he goes back to Bethany for the night. Tuesday is the day of messianic proclamation continued. As he goes back to Jerusalem, he uses the withered fig tree as an object lesson on faith. And then he possesses the temple. In fact, in Mark 11, 16, we find that he possesses and controls the temple so much so that no one could even carry a jug of water without his permission. Now, the Sadducees and the priests were the ones that were in control of the temple. Oh boy, are they mad. That's our temple. How dare this guy, this Galilean, come and possess the temple. So they begin to try 
to embarrass him in front of the crowds. And they do so by coming up to ask him questions. Now, every single one of these questions are a trap. They want to trap him and either make him look weak or make him look like he is in favor of Rome. And see, the, the problem is, if he talks poorly against Rome, then he's an insurrectionist. They can take him off to Rome as a revolutionary, and Rome will have their way with him. So they try to trap him, but he confounds his enemies. They cannot trap him. He's too intelligent for that. And then he goes back to Bethany for the night. On his way back, he gives the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, when he's asked about the end times, he gives the discourse on how to look for signs of the end times. Well, they're back in Bethany. G Judas sneaks away and makes a deal with the Sanhedrin. The deal is, I'll give you the inside scoop on where you can get him alone. That's the deal. Wednesday is often considered an administrative day. We call that a silent day. But I don't think it is a day of, of inaction. Jesus was a human and he had to figure out how he was going to outwit the Sanhedrin and Judas. And so he plans. He figures out what they're going to do. He's playing a game of chess with the Sanhedrin and Judas. Now the next slide we're going to look at, this is just going to be a quick This is just going to be a quick look at, so we can understand the calendar. There are some questions on uh, why does Jesus celebrate the Passover, and yet he's sacrificed as the Passover lamb. So to kind of straighten this out, it helps us to understand the calendar. So we have up here Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, the, the Passion Week calendar. Uh, right below that, you see the 328.29. That's our calendar. Now, something that we often take for granted is when does a day start for us? Midnight. I mean, so often we think it's morning time, right? But our calendar starts at midnight. So our days go from midnight to midnight. The Judean calendar is that next line where you see Nisan 9, Nisan 10. The Judean calendar went from sun down to sun down. The Roman calendar goes from sun up to sun up. So you can see that third line is the Roman calendar. Now you see how this kind of shifts all the days just a little bit? Now, Jerusalem ran into a bit of a problem. You had hundreds of thousands of pilgrims there for the Passover, and on the day of Passover, where you sacrifice the lamb, you've got between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. to kill your sacrificial lamb in the temple. In fact, they were killing so... Just think of the blood. Well, some of you might pass out, so don't think of the blood for those of you who are a little bit squirmish. Uh, but uh, uh, there was a massive amount of blood, thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. In fact, so much so that the Brook Kidron, which runs behind, I should say, to the west of the temple, on the day of Passover, would be flowing with blood. It's a lot of blood. And yet they ran into a problem. They couldn't sacrifice enough lambs for all the pilgrims. The solution came in that the Galilean Jews began to adopt the sunrise to sunrise Roman calendar. Now that puts the day of Passover for them, or the time to kill the lambs for them, on what we consider Thursday. So if you look here, we've got a couple different X's. That's where the Passover lamb would be killed. 
So the, the Galilean Jews would kill their Passover lamb on the 14th, but that would be Thursday afternoon between 3 and 6 p.m. The Judean Jews will kill them on Friday the 14th, uh, but just from sun down to sundown. So now we can see how Jesus on Thursday can celebrate the Passover dinner with his other Galilean friends, and yet on Friday is considered the Passover lamb. So let's go to the next slide. That brings us to Thursday. Thursday is a day of messianic preparation. He's going to observe the Passover with his apostles. He's going to warn them of a betrayal. And, at the, and he will also give Judas permission to leave. And he'll tell them, what you have to do, go and do quickly. So Judas leaves. Now you can imagine, he's got this deal with the Sanhedrin. He'll run off to find them, to say, hey, I've got him. He's at this upper room. He's only with the twelve. You can take him easily. There's no crowds. There will be no riots. So he runs away. Jesus now in his mind knows the clock is ticking. And he stays and he gives some instruction. And yet knowing that he needs to buy just a little bit more time to get away and to prepare himself for what's about to happen, he stands up and he says, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What's interesting is in John 18, John actually writes that he steps over the brook Kidron. So on his way from the upper room, he steps over the brook that is flowing with the blood of the Passover lamb. He goes to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there, just imagine, just imagine what Judas is going through now. He comes to the Sanhedrin with God in and he leads the Sanhedrin back to the upper room just to open the door and empty. Oh man, his heart must have sank. He, quick, think, think, Judas, think. What are you going to do? Oh, I know. I know of a garden he loves to go to. So he leads them to the garden. And it is at the garden that the Jewish leaders arrest him. They bring an entire Roman cohort. That's six hundred soldiers. Now you're thinking to yourself, that's a bit of overkill, isn't it? But the Romans were used to revolutions. They were used to Jewish insurrectionists that were going to overthrow them. And it was violent and it was bloody. And so they show up ready to squash any revolutionary. They show up ready to go to war. Because that's what they think Jesus is, a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. And that's why it's so important when Jesus goes in peace. As if to say, no, you've got it all wrong. I am not an insurrectionist. I am not a revolutionary. I did not come here to overthrow Rome. So he goes in peace. Early Friday morning, which we'll call a day of messianic atonement, before the sun is up, he is brought to the high priest's house. And he will have a trial in front of the Sanhedrin. This trial will go through three phases. The first is illegal questions by Annas. Remember, Annas is the father of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. Annas at one point was the high priest. After the illegal questioning, there will be a trial still held at night. Now this is very important because Jewish 
jurisprudence is much like ours. They, they use it to ensure an innocent man is not executed. We would hate to execute an innocent man. And so there are certain rules they have to follow to ensure that an innocent man will not be executed. One of those is that trials have to be held during the day. They can't be held at night. Well, if you sneak away at night and hold the trial, can any witness that would help defend the accused come forward? No. It needs to be held during the day. Another one is that it's supposed to be held in public. It's not supposed to be held in a house. It's supposed to be held at the city gates. Why at the city gates? Well, if someone just happened to walk by and, and heard and said, oh, wait, I was there. I witnessed that. He didn't actually say that. He didn't actually commit that crime. The defendant could be let off. They were supposed to actually send heralds throughout the city proclaiming that someone was on trial and will be executed. If any witnesses know of what happened, come forth. None of that happened. And finally, similar to our Fifth Amendment, you could not be forced to testify against yourself. All of this to protect an innocent man and ensure no innocent man would be, would be killed or executed. So they have a trial at night, illegally. And in Matthew 26, 63, we see in the high priest, that being Caiaphas, stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. He's making him testify against himself at this moment. Illegally. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now it's important that we recognize what the question is here. Because what he's on trial for with the Jewish leadership isn't insurrection, but blasphemy. So Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? And so you see, it wasn't an insurrection. He was not being tried as a revolutionary. He was being tried for blasphemy. Now it's blasphemy for you and I to claim to be God. But for someone who is God, it's not blasphemy. He can declare himself to be the Son of God because he is the Son of God. So he's found guilty, and then there's one more trial. They wait till the sun comes up just to kind of make it legal. They hold one quick trial, they find him guilty, and they send him off to Pilate. Pilate, there will be three phases to the trial before Pilate. The first one is that he will have a little conversation with Jesus. He'll find out that he's a Galilean. Pilate, wanting nothing to do with this, will send him over to Herod, because Herod is the tetriarch of Galilee. Herod just wants to see the miracles. He's heard about Jesus. Jesus is a famous miracle worker. So he says, hey, come on, show us some miracles. After getting bored with Jesus, he sends him back to Pilate. And it's at this point that Pilate is warned by his wife, and Pilate tries to let him go. Pilate clearly sees the, the accusation in the Jewish trial was that he was speaking blasphemy. 
Pilate doesn't care what Jesus claims about God. We don't even know if Pilate believed in a God or several gods. We have no clue what Pilate believed religiously. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus claims to be the Jews' God. The charge against Jesus before Pilate is that he's an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, and that can't stand in Rome. Rome cannot have and cannot tolerate revolutionaries, insurrections. That's something they can't tolerate. So that's what they put before before Pilate. It's important for us to understand this because Pilate Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He is cleared of all charges. Repeatedly, he says, this man is not guilty. And he tries to release him. In a last-ditch effort to release Jesus, Pilate offers to release either Jesus, not an insurrectionist, or Barabbas, a known murderer. And to his astonishment, and I think everyone else in that leadership circle, the crowds yell for Barabbas. And they include a phrase that would have terrified Pilate. John 19.12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. And I think that we can't emphasize that enough. He clearly sees them as innocent. In fact, Peter, later on in Acts 2, will say he was determined. Think about that. He was determined to let Jesus go. He clearly saw him as innocent. We know that Jesus was innocent. But from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now to get a little backstory on Pilate. Pilate was friends with a guy named Sejanus. Sejanus had actually tried to start a coup against Caesar Tiberius. The coup was overthrown, and Sejanus and everyone that was associated with that coup were killed. Pilate was associated with Sejanus, and he's on thin ice with Caesar. So when the crowds yell, you're no friend of Caesar's, essentially what they're saying to him is if you don't kill Jesus, we're going to tell Caesar. If you don't kill Jesus, Caesar will kill you. That's essentially what the crowds are saying. And it scares Pilate so much that he washes his hands and says, fine. Away with it. Away with him. So the question is, why did the crowds turn on Jesus? All week long, the Jewish leadership were afraid of the crowds. In fact, one of the reasons why they have the trial at night, one of the reasons why they bring him first thing in the morning is they're hoping to beat the crowds to the punch. If they can just hurry up and get him killed before the crowds wake up, then it's Rome's fault, it's not our fault, we can get away with this. I don't think anyone there expected the crowds to yell, crucify him. So the question is, why? And I think the answer comes in understanding the background of the Jews. They were oppressed by Rome. It was an awful oppression. They had to pay taxes without representation. I think we fought a war over that. 
time we call? They were forced to pay taxes. They were forced to abide by Rome. They weren't free. But they knew of a Messiah that was going to come. They knew of a Messiah. And so they looked back into the Old Testament and everything that, that talked about Messiah, they could twist just to make it about a political deliverer. And don't get me wrong, Jesus will return as a king that will deliver us all and will govern with a rod of iron. He will. But before that, there's Isaiah 53 that talks about how he's going to be a man of suffering, a man who will die for our sins. The iniquities will be placed upon him. But they ignored that scripture all because they were oppressed and they desired a political deliverer. And Jesus has shown up as that Messiah. Jesus has shown up. He claimed to be Messiah. And he had the miracles to authenticate his Messiahship. That was why they were so excited. They didn't think they needed a personal deliverer. They were Israelites. They were the righteous ones. The ones that had the covenant with God. They didn't need a personal savior. They needed a political deliverer. And that's why they were so excited about Jesus. That's why they were so excited to welcome him as king when he came in on the triumphal entry. That's why they were so excited all week long because they knew that the king had come, the Messiah had come, and he was going to overthrow Rome. They desired a political deliverer. And because they desired that so much, they missed the personal savior that the Messiah actually was. And so now imagine you're a Jew. You've been, you've been taught and you've believed that this Messiah is going to save you from Rome. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to throw off the shackles of Rome and Israel will finally return to glory. And here he is. You've seen him. You've welcomed him as king. And all week long, he's been building this up. He's owned the temple. You know that the revolution is going to start and then you wake up. And he's beaten and he's bloody. And he's been captured by Rome. All of that excitement has now turned into a letdown. All of that excitement has just been one big lie. So in the Jewish mind at the time, as they looked at Jesus bloody next to Pilate, all they could think about was forget that pretender Messiah. Give him what he deserves. Death. He promised us he was Messiah. And Messiah means freedom. And he fell. So because they were looking for a political de deliverer, they yelled, crucify him for the personal Savior. So those who welcomed him as king on Sunday yelled, crucify him on Friday. But the story does not end here. We know and we celebrate today that Jesus rose. He rose from the dead. His entire ministry, he worked signs to authenticate his message. The greatest of these signs was the resurrection. And it flipped Jerusalem and all of Israel upside down. That crowd that welcomed him, welcomed him as king on Sunday yelled, crucify him on Friday. In the months afterwards, would come to see him as their personal savior. 
It was a movement that could not be stopped. No matter how hard the religious leaders tried to stop it, no matter how hard the Jewish leaders tried to stop it, they could not stop the gospel because Jesus rose from the dead. And when the Jews recognized what had happened, they recognized their need for a personal Savior. And they put their faith and trust in Him, and He changed their hearts. How about you? Are you looking for a political deliverer? Do you use Jesus to try to serve your political means? Now don't get me wrong, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, our our politics should change. Jesus, as He changes our hearts, should change the way we view things. But Jesus is not a political deliverer today. He did not die on a cross so that you could live comfortably. After all, what is politics but our desire to live comfortably? To have our worldview. Or do you recognize your need for a personal Savior. Every single one of us has rebelled against God at some point in our life. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. Every single one of us has had some type of moral failure where we didn't meet God's standard. And because of that, every single one of us deserves death. But God being so rich in mercy and love, came and He paid that price for you. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He came, He paid the price so that you can live. So what are you looking for? A political deliverer? Or do you recognize your need? That you're not righteous without Christ that you need a personal Savior. Dear Lord, we thank you so much. You came to this world and you died in our place. And then to prove it all, you rose. You could have stayed in the grave. You could have leapt off that cross any time. And yet you stayed and you rose and you flipped Jerusalem upside down, and you inspired the church to continue to move the gospel, Lord, we recognize that we need a personal Savior. That we are all sinners, that we have all fallen short, that we have all rebelled against you. Lord, we put our faith and trust in you, that you paid the price for our rebellion and sin. In your name we pray.